Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, the radio show and podcast for those who refuse to just take things on faith. This is Jeremy Bean, and sadly, I will not be joined by my fellow Doubtcasters today as they are enjoying a much-deserved break for the holidays. We will be back sometime in the later half of January 2012 with brand new episodes. But today, in celebration of the solstice, I wanted to share with you something that's a little different from what we ordinarily do on the show. A few months ago, I was invited by All Souls Unitarian Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan to deliver a message on atheism. Now, it's been a long time for me since I've even been in a church, let alone preaching, let alone preaching on the subject of atheism. So this was a new and exciting challenge for me, and I'm very pleased with the positive response it's received so far. The overall theme of the sermon is the importance of integrity and courage of being willing to stand apart from the crowd and ask the difficult questions. That's why I can't think of a more fitting person to dedicate this sermon to than Christopher Hitchens. Reason and justice have had few advocates as bold, eloquent, and fearless as him. Thank you, Hitch, for standing against the tyranny of superstition. You were no ordinary thread. You were the purple cord that stood out and made this stained and tattered garment beautiful. You will always be an inspiration to me, and I hope this sermon can serve in some small way to honor your memory. Shortly after I was invited to speak here, I got on Facebook uh, to put a status on um, on just how excited I was at the opportunity to write and to deliver an atheist sermon. And uh, right away, my cousin, my younger cousin, uh, left a comment saying, uh, um, I, think, I think atheist sermon might be an oxymoron. <laughs> to which I replied, well, you've never been to a Unitarian church. Any church uh, where we can read Robert Ingersoll to, uh, to laughter and nods of approval is the kind of church I could get into. <laughs> I feel comfortable here because we are all heretics in this room, at least according to the scores of Calvinists that live in our area, <laughs> and according to sociologist Peter Berger, who thinks we are all heretics just by living in a pluralistic society. The English word heresy comes from the Greek verb which means to choose. And in a society as diverse as ours, none of us are stuck with the religion we were raised in. Unlike most humans for most of human history, we have real alternatives. This is why to Berger, we all face what he calls the heretical imperative. No one can avoid choosing their religious identity for themselves. And this freedom comes with a tremendous responsibility, of course, because nothing shapes who we are and what we value more than our convictions concerning ultimate reality. I am here to represent people who do not worship any gods, people who choose to live without belief in the supernatural. We are called by many names, atheists, agnostics, free thinkers, skeptics, and secular humanists. 
I'm comfortable with any of these labels, but please do not call me an unbeliever. If you ask, you'll find there are many things I believe in, and I suspect you probably share some of those beliefs. I believe through reason, observation, and experiment, we limited human beings can find some measure of understanding in this world. I believe that the pursuit of truth and the cultivation of virtue are the most noble of human aspirations. I believe that patriarchy, authoritarianism, and fundamentalism are the greatest threats to human progress. I believe that the survival of the human species depends on education and empowerment of women worldwide. I believe that friendship is what makes life bearable. We should choose our friends carefully, but once chosen, we should give ourselves to them fully. I believe in many things, and these beliefs help me make sense of the world. They inform my goals. They direct my actions. I turn to them in times of hardship and uncertainty because they remind me of who I am and the purpose I've chosen for my life. It's not a lack of beliefs which earns me and my fellow atheists that label unbeliever. It's our lack of faith. The vast majority of the people living on this planet believe in a God or some other higher reality that transcends the physical world. Having faith seems to be as ordinary a human activity as breathing. It's only natural to regard the relatively few of us who reject the supernatural with suspicion. Why haven't they signed on to faith? Well, to answer that, we must return back to that heretical imperative that I spoke of earlier. We must choose our religious identity for ourselves, but faced with so many options, how do we choose? By the authority of a tradition or scriptures? Whose tradition? Which scriptures? Christians and Muslims both take their scriptures to be the word of God, but the Bible and the Quran contradict on numerous essential points of doctrine. By what criteria can we decide which scriptures are truly inspired by God and which are merely the invention of human beings? What about miracles? Both Hindus and Catholics point to supposed miraculous events and supernatural signs as proof of their claims. On what ground do we affirm Catholic miracles yet deny Hindu miracles? What about personal religious experience? What about the power of religion to transform lives? Many Christians insist that they know their faith is true because they can feel God's presence. They have a direct knowledge of God through the inner witness of the Spirit. But Muslims also feel the divine peace that comes with submission to Allah. Zen Buddhists catch a direct glimpse of enlightenment through the experience of Satori. Every one of these faiths can point to people who've turned away from violence or substance abuse through the redemptive power of their religions. So on what basis, other than prejudice or arbitrary preference for my own tradition, do I take the experience of Christians seriously and simply dismiss the experience of Jews, Muslims, Hindus, and Buddhists? Perhaps in the end it all boils down to faith. Perhaps you must first believe and then you will see the truth. But what help is that? Centuries ago, Julius Caesar observed, men are generally ready to believe what they wish to be true. Knowing this, we should be all the more hesitant to simply commit to believing something where evidence has failed us. Atheists believe in many things, but we do not accept the authority of tradition or scriptures. We do not trust in the words of self-styled prophets or the inner conviction of the spirit. 
We put little stock in miraculous visions or personal experiences of the divine because we reason that these methods cannot be reliable guides to truth if they lead to such radically divergent views on reality. For this, we are often accused of arrogance, and I understand that. After all, what could be more audacious than to trust one's own fallible judgment over the eternal truths of the Creator? I, however, believe this skepticism is rooted in a profound humility. It comes from a deep appreciation of human fallibility and of how easily we are taken in by self-consoling fantasies. It comes from a rare willingness to be self-critical, to root out the errors and delusions in one's own thought in hope of seeing the world more clearly. Consider this quote from the Irish feminist and freethinker Iris Murdoch. By opening our eyes, we do not necessarily see what confronts us. We are anxiety-ridden animals. Our minds are continually active, fabricating an anxious, usually self-preoccupied, often falsifying veil, which partially conceals the world. Our fantasies and our reveries are not trivial and unimportant. They are profoundly connected with our energies and our ability to choose and act. If quality of consciousness matters, then anything which alters consciousness in the direction of unselfishness, objectivity, and realism is to be connected with virtue. Iris Murdoch was not the first to realize that the pursuit of truth may ask even more of our character than it does of our intellect. It requires not only humility, but the openness to consider contrary viewpoints, the integrity to judge one's own beliefs and the beliefs of others by the same standards, the patience to suspend judgment until the evidence is in, the persistence to think through difficult problems, the courage to follow the evidence wherever it leads, and the flexibility to change one's beliefs should they be cast into doubt by new evidence. Believe it, my good friend, wrote John Locke in a letter to Anthony Collins, to love truth for truth's sake is the principal part of human perfection in this world and the seed plot of all other virtues. So if we love truth for truth's sake, if we wish to push our consciousness in the direction of unselfishness, objectivity, and realism, then how should we proceed? Since we know our hopes and our intuitions so often lead us astray, since we know our reason is so often in error, we need some sort of external check on our beliefs. We need an impartial source against which we can test our theories so that we can discover when we are indeed wrong. No holy book can meet this challenge, but the book of nature can. Nature cares not at all for our feelings. She has no interest in confirming our prejudices or affirming our delusions. Claims that require the authority of a guru, mystical insight, or the eyes of faith are by their very nature undemocratic. They are only for the elect. But nature has no elect. She will give her secrets to anyone, regardless of race, gender, or circumstances of birth. Nature never asks us to take things on faith. She implores us to look beyond mere appearances, to investigate deeply into her inner workings, and to see the truth for ourselves. To the degree that it is possible, I believe we should limit our beliefs to that which we can observe in the natural world or that which we can reasonably infer from those observations. We should all adopt the attitude of that annoying math teacher who told you, don't just give me the answers, show me your work. 
Now, of course, we only ever see nature through human eyes, so again, we must be humble. We should not pretend that we can understand nature's ways without making assumptions, without forming theories. Fine. But let them be cautious. Make sure they are logically sound. Check that they are coherent with previously discovered knowledge and expect them to lead to new insights and discoveries. And when they do not, discard them and start over again. I wish to be careful not to be misunderstood. I'm not proposing that truth be so narrowly defined as to only include scientific knowledge. I'm not denying the existence of a priori truths, nor am I denying the importance of socially constructed systems of meaning. I'm not denying the importance of human subjectivity either. Philosophy, art, personal introspection, all are essential to a rich understanding of what it means to be human. But when it comes to reality, that which exists prior to and independent of ourselves, we should limit our claims to that which can be tested against the natural world. Some might object, as the eminent scientist and philosopher William James did, that if we limit our understanding in this way, won't we run the risk of missing out on profound, ineffable, even life-altering truths? Yes, we might. But that's the price of getting it right. Or as Nelson Goodman put it, you may decry some of these scruples and protest that there are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in my philosophy. Perhaps. I am concerned, rather, that there should not be more things dreamt of in my philosophy than are in heaven or earth. More often the objection we hear is that without the supernatural, the universe is devoid of wonder, hope, meaning, and purpose. Don't you long to be a part of something larger than yourself? Don't you want your life to be significant? I never know how I should answer these questions. Uh, On the one hand, I am eager to affirm that naturalism presents us with a view of the world that's just as beautiful as the ones we'll find in any religion. On the other hand, a world without the supernatural really does confront us with some disturbing possibilities. And I feel we ought to confront these head on instead of just grasping at consolations. So let's start with the affirmative side. In the beginning, all the atoms that make up your body were once in the heart of a star. Inside that solar furnace, nuclei of hydrogen atoms fused together to make the heavier elements required for life. When that star died, those elements were released into the open vastness of space. Over time, gravity brought those elements back together again to form new stars and planets. And at least one of those planets had a handful of these atoms that began to do something quite amazing. By no other force but the laws of physics and chemistry, they formed long chains of macromolecules determined by their chemistry to make crude copies of themselves. The first cells formed and began to divide. Some cells stuck together after dividing and began to differentiate their functions, leading to the first multicellular organisms. Some evolved limbs and antennae, patches of cells sensitive to heat and pressure, and suddenly the universe could feel. Some evolved cells which could detect light and the direction of its source. Some even had primitive lenses that could focus that light, and suddenly the universe could see. 
Some of these organisms evolved tiny models of reality within their nervous systems, internal representations of their own body in the outside world, and suddenly the universe could experience. It could predict events. It could even, to some degree, control its responses. Some of these organisms evolved the ability to use concepts and language, and suddenly the universe could communicate. It could look upon itself with wonder, and it could ask, who am I? So to the person who says, but don't you want to be a part of something larger than yourself? I say, you might know the science, but you've somehow failed to comprehend what you truly are. Don't you see that you are the latest stage in a complex chemical reaction that's been taking place for billions of years? Don't you see that there is an unbroken chain of heredity that unites you to every other living thing on this planet and even the stars themselves? You are not just a collection of atoms. You are atoms with awareness. You are not just matter. You are matter with meaning. As Carl Sagan so simply put it, you are a way for the universe to know itself. What could you ever hope to be that is that grand. But in the scope of eternity, aren't we all just insignificant specks of dust? Don't for a second believe that just because you are small and your time here is short that you are somehow insignificant. That star of ours, shining up there in the sky, actually shining today, we don't usually see that here in Michigan. That star the one that's been around for a billion years before you were born and will remain for millions of years after you die. Does it dream? Does it hope? Does it love? Does it wake up in the morning and face the world and try to make something of itself? Does it feel a single thing? What about the Milky Way? What about all the colossal superclusters of galaxies that make up this universe? Of course not. Without life, there is no harm. There is no gain. There is no state of affairs preferable to any other. There can be no such thing as value. But introduce a subject of experience and everything changes. Suddenly value and meaning and purpose make sense. I'm afraid that we've been looking to the sky for our marching orders for so long that we've gotten things turned around. You depend on that star for survival, but it depends on you for significance. If that star and this planet is important at all, it is because it gives life to you. This entire cosmos can only be made significant through our collective story, the story of all sentient beings that experience life within it. What an awesome privilege that is. So how do you think we're doing on that business of making our universe significant? In its final draft, how do you think that story will read? Will it be a good book? Will humanity's chapter be one of its high points? Or will it be one long, miserable, cautionary tale? Think about that question and you'll catch a sense of the awesome burden facing those who wish to live ethically in a natural world. You see, if there is no God, then our story comes with no guarantee of a happy ending. Only humanity can solve its own problems, and it's not entirely clear that we are up to the task. I believe humanism also has its own kind of irrational faith 
Since the time of Europe's so-called enlightenment, humanists have been eager to cast off Christian faith in the coming kingdom of heaven and replace it with a secular faith in the coming triumph of reason over superstition and the inevitable march of progress that will follow in its wake. Yes, humankind has made incredible advancements in our understanding. We've cured diseases. We've tripled our life expectancy. We've brought the human community closer than ever before, all through the power of our technology, and for that, we deserve to be proud. But do we dare forget that we only narrowly avoided annihilating the entire human race with nuclear weapons, and that next time we might not be so lucky? How many cultures have been erased? How many native peoples displaced, or worse, eradicated? And that's only the human toll we've racked up over these centuries of progress. We are now, every one of us in this room, contributing to the largest mass extinction of species in human history, genocides upon genocides happening each day. We're changing the climate, and although the science is sound, most of us are too enamored with our way of life to seek any significant change. It is getting difficult for any caring, sensitive person to continue reading this story when each page is saturated with violence, greed, hatred, and anguish, especially if you suspect, as I do, that no savior will come down from the sky to rescue us in the end. Still, though it might be painful, do not close the book before it's finished. Look closely and you'll find that this dark chapter also contains scores of characters who stand apart from all the ugliness and bring real beauty to these pages. From tiny gestures of kindness to heroic acts of compassion, they redeem our narrative, or at the very least, they make its reading more bearable. Right now, you are writing your own contribution to this chapter. Will your story inspire like theirs? I want to end with a story that inspires me. The story comes from the Stoic philosopher Epictetus, which might be an odd choice to end an atheist sermon with but I think this really captures for me the essence of secular humanism or whatever we want to call it. Emperor Nero had a very twisted sense of humor. He used to write plays where the characters would perform a range of humiliating and degrading acts. He would then cast prominent members of Roman society into these roles and have them perform before large audiences, and anyone who refused was promptly executed. The Roman historian Florus and the Stoic philosopher Agrippinus were both summoned by Nero to act in one of these plays. True to his philosophy, the Stoic had no intention of taking part in this debasement. But Florus protested, if I refuse to participate in Nero's festival, he will kill me. I still refuse, said the Stoic, but you go ahead and participate. Why, asked Florus. Because you think of yourself as no more than a single thread in the robe, whose duty it is to conform to the mass of people. Just a single white thread has no wish to clash with the remainder of the garment. But I aspire to be the purple stripe. That is the garment's brilliant hem. However small a part it may be, it can still manage to make the rest of the garment attractive. Don't tell me be like the rest. Because in that case, I cannot be the purple stripe. Optimism is not always a rational attitude, but hope is. 
Hope doesn't have to delude us about our chances when encouraging us to press on. I hope that when all is said and done, humanity's chapter and life's story will be a bright one. But even if it is not, I still stand in admiration of those who do not accept easy answers or bow to received wisdom. People who pursued truth for its own sake, who did good not out of any expectation of divine reward or fear of punishment, but because they loved life and they wished to see it thrive. I think that's what humanism is really about. It's finding the courage to stand apart and say, don't tell me to be like the rest. I choose to live my life by reason and not settle for faith. I choose to serve all sentient life and not just the elect. I choose to press on instead of praying for a miracle because I believe that is how I make my life and the universe of which I am a part significant. Thank you. So that's an atheist sermon. I'd like to thank the generous people at All Souls Unitarian Church for giving me the chance to speak. And as no sermon would be complete without passing the plate around, if you value reasonable doubts, please consider contributing a small financial gift to keep this show running. You can donate through PayPal at www.doubtcast.org. And if you can't afford to give financially, you can still show your support by writing us a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast directory, or by linking to us on your blog, Facebook, or Twitter feed, or by just telling a friend about the show. We are so thankful for the support and for the encouragement we've received from our listeners over the years. We love putting this show together for you, and we ask that you please continue to spread the word about reasonable doubts. Thanks, and have a great new year. To catch up on past Reasonable Doubts episodes, or to email your questions or comments, check out www.doubtcast.org. Reasonable Doubts is a production of WPRR Reality Radio. You can find out more about Reality Radio at publicrealityradio.org. Reasonable Doubts theme music is performed by Love Fossil and used with permission. 